Anyway, well, let's get rolling. We're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I know we read this every week, but we're going to continue to do so because we've got to understand the foundation of everything we hold true. Everything we hold true is founded inside of God. If you eliminate God from the, the equation, there is no absolutes at that point. Because at that point, now, morality is relative. If you think it's okay, then it's okay. If you think it's not okay, then it's not okay. But it's a moving target. You have to have some sort of standard. That standard is God. Now, atheists hate this argument. They hate the fact that you, you apply any sort of absolutes. But the problem is, is if you were to say that there is no absolute truth, you use an absolute truth claim to make that statement. It's a moral conundrum, this, this logical and philosophical problem that we have. Now, here's the thing. And this is part of our culture and the problem that we have today. The understanding of who God is is not dictated on your beliefs in Him. Whether you think that God is Yahweh, the Jewish, Judeo-Christian God, whether you think that's the, the God, whether you think it has something to do with Buddhism, pantheism of some sort, perhaps Allah, doesn't matter. Because the one thing that we can unequivocally agree on, whether you are an atheist, Christian, Muslim, whatever, is the fact is this. We can't all be right. So one or all of us is wrong. Or one of us is right. But we can't all be right when we are describing a difference in the characteristics and the name of God. Because the argument that you'll get from people today is that, well, it's just God. We just call Him by different names. We just come to Him through different means. It's all about your journey and how you got there, not really the end result. And the problem with that is, is, well, then who's wrong? Well, nobody's wrong. We live in this utopian society where everybody gets along. It's all sunshine and lollipops and boxes of puppies and chocolate candies, and we love life. The problem is it's all a load of nonsense, you see, the reason I'm hammering on this point is because we are literally in the forefront of talking about the characteristic of God. And the one thing that we can say about God is that whatever He says is true, right? But why or how do we know about His characteristics? Number one, how do we know what He said? And number two is, how do we know that it's true? It comes back to this. This and this alone not this version of it, but this is nothing more than something that captures the words and essence of the character of God. When you eliminate this, then God is just an opinion. Truth is just an opinion. We having fun over here or what? It's way too much. Am I moving too much? Faster than a speeding bullet, baby. Y'all know that ain't true. I mean, but think about it, though. Yeah, we need a wide-angle lens, don't we? I see what's going on here. She's like, I can only get half of them at one time. There were too many of y'all thinking that. Shame on you. I identify as thin, all right? That's all that matters. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. All right, so where were we? We're at this point. What we know about God is dictated upon the Word of God. If you eliminate this, it is just your opinion. 
You can call God anything you want. That's why people today believe that they're going to heaven because they're a good person. The problem is, is that flies at the antithesis of what Scripture says. And if that's true, then fine. If it's true what we believe, then you know that's wrong. But if we are wrong, then it doesn't really matter what you believe. The resurrection. Do you realize that that is the cornerstone of our faith? Paul says himself that if this is not true, in other words, that Jesus died and was buried and resurrected according to the Scripture, if that's not true, then you're still in your sins and all of this is for naught. So that better be true. And if that's true, then we should look at the Word the way that Jesus did. How did He look at the Scriptures? What were His thoughts on the character of God? Because there's all this nonsense that's out there because we don't teach properly what we call hermeneutics on how we interpret Scripture. What do we do today? We take some story, we read it, we try to apply some moral argument for us, like, oh, you know, I'm David, what's your Goliath? How are you going to overcome? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We're like, what's the shadow you're walking through? We just trust God. Did you know that the valley of death is a real place. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're thinking, yeah, we're not going to do it. We're going to go in there. They can't conquer us and all of that. The problem is the gates of hell was a literal place. We argue from these standpoints that it's like, oh, this is nothing more than a metaphor or something along that line. We have lost our foundation, and because we've lost our foundation, we've lost the character of God. Everybody says God is love. Nobody will define what that means. I don't care what you think it means. I care what God meant by what he said. If God is love, what comes with that? Well, number one, he fulfills all his promises. Now we have to determine what his promise is. His promise in John 3.16 that he loved the world, and because of that, he sent his son. Because guess what? We were all doomed to go to hell, and he made a way. Thank God for it. I mean, we should not take that lightly. He'll never force anybody into heaven against their will. But he made a way for anybody that wanted to come to him that they could, which is wonderful. And with that, we have seen that there are things attached to it. That Jesus' flesh was the veil that separated man from God. And now we looking at the picture of the Day of Atonement, we go through His flesh to come into the presence of God, do we not? We're going to take communion today. What are we signifying? My body, which was broken for you. My blood, which was shed for you. Who is it shed for? Who is it broken for? It's broken for all of us. All who want to receive it. You see, we have lost... This idea of understanding who God is. And what are we focused on? We're focused on healing. So let's look at Matthew chapter 4. I read this last week. I'm going to recap a little bit, as I do every week, just to bring everybody up to speed in case you forgot what I said last week, which is a good chance, and I don't blame you. It's okay. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and nights, he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, isn't it interesting that if we're just going to do things the way Jesus did, how did Jesus handle temptation? Scripture. He turned to Scripture. He didn't say, Oh, no, I don't like bread. I'm on a low-carb diet. He used Scripture. The Scriptures itself was what he used to overcome the temptation of the enemy. Perhaps that's a model that we could follow. But it tells you something. The way that Jesus 
looked at what they called Scripture, which is what we call the Old Testament. The problem is when we call it the Old Testament, we tend to undervalue it. So where did this come from? It came from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 1, every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all, these four, uh, all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, he allowed you to hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers, that he might make you know that man will not live by bread alone. There's the quote. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of, mouth of the Lord. Now, what did I say last week? What would happen if we just took that last part, that man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord? What if we just took that part of that passage and said, you know what? I'm going to live my life this way from here on out. I don't care what I come against. I don't care what else is going on in the world. I'm just going to live by what God has said. What would that do? I mean, think about it. How many commercials do you see right now when you're watching TV that are out there that have something to do with some taking some preventative pill to deal with an STD. There's a lot of them. They're all over the place. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, maybe just stop being a whore. But that's besides the point, you know. I know you're not supposed to use that word in church, but I did. Here's the thing. What if we just took the principles applied by God's word of saying, sex is between a man and a woman in a married, committed relationship. Would we have a need for STD pills? If we just did that, No. Would we have unwanted pregnancies? Likely not, depending on how many kids you got. I mean, the thing is, it's like we would solve a lot of the world's problems if we just simply did and lived by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, we're talking about how we live this way, but what if we acted like every word that proceeded from the mouth of the Lord was true? And every promise that God gave was for us will come to fruition. And every position that he says that we are in and has placed us at is exactly what's going to take place. Am I wearing you out yet? Leslie, you're doing okay? You're following me around, all right? Did you find the wide-angle segment on that thing? <laughs> Isaiah chapter 53. We read this last week. Let's look at this again. We've read this several weeks. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. We have, uh, looking at this idea as what, what was really going on here, because we hear griefs and sorrows. There's a big debate on this verse in the church today. You know why there's a big debate? Because instead of looking at what the Word says, we look at what we see happen in the world, and so we take that and we now apply that meaning to the Scripture. So let me explain what I'm talking about. Uh, let's look at the same verse in uh, the Young Living Translation. Surely our sicknesses he hath borne, and our pains he hath carried them, and we have esteemed him plagued, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now here's the thing. What am I talking about? Why was this translation? What Robert Young did is all he said is like, what does it literally say in the Hebrew? I'm not going to kind of play with the words. It's like I'm just going to put the literal translation, and sometimes that doesn't translate very well. We see that the word Greece was the uh, Hebrew word koli, and these are the different meanings that were up there. Sickness, affliction, disease, griefs, griefs, illness, sickness, sickness, sicknesses. Every one of those numbers is associated with the number of times that it is used. So where do they get the translation for the word grief? One. You're probably looking at it right there. It's interesting they chose to use that. Look at some of these passages. Deuteronomy 7, verse 15. And the Lord will take away from you all the sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. What does that word sickness mean? Sickness. Not complicated, is it? 
Deuteronomy 28, 61, also every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed. Maybe that's a metaphor. 1 Kings 17, verse 17, now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. Maybe he meant griefs there. He just was having a bad day. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 12, And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His malady was severe, yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord but the physicians. Is there any argument, is there any way to look at this, any other way that Jesus, this being a messianic prophecy, bore our sickness? It's really hard. You have to try hard to twist it, don't you? But we found a way. Why? Because we pray for people who don't get healed. We know good believers who die in some ailment. So what do we do with that? Well, that must not be what it means because we don't see it come to fruition every time. That leads us on this road of theories. You like theories? I like theories. They can be fun. You know what's beautiful about a theory? Is you should be able to prove whether it's true or not. In other words, if you say that God doesn't heal today, it only takes one supernatural healing to prove that wrong. You can have that theory, but you have to be honest about it. Where we believe that it is God's will to heal all, but some aren't. So what do we do with that? Well, he must not mean, because if this is in the atonement, then we should be as healed as we are saved. Is that not right? So here's the question. Do all get healed? No. Should all get healed? We're going to continue digging into that. Do all get saved? It's his will that none should perish. Do some? Absolutely. Let's look at the word pain back in uh, uh, 53 verse 4. It's the Hebrew word macabre. Here it is. But his flesh, Job 14, 22, will be in pain over it. And his soul mourn over it. Job 33, 19. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones. Jeremiah 51, 8. Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. Guys, what we're seeing here, we've just looked at this briefly, is the idea of what do we see the usage of these words in the Old Testament? And we see it time and again, sickness, pain, sickness, pain, sickness, pain. I don't know about you, but if you eliminated those words from our vocabulary, wouldn't it be wonderful? No more sickness, no more pain. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't that what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be all about? Which makes you wonder, isn't that what the original heaven and the original earth were supposed to be about? And what happened? Sin. With sin comes death. Sickness is slow death. But God has designed our bodies with the ability to fight off sickness. He's also intervened supernaturally. So if you just look at it as Jesus would have through the Old Testament, could you not make the argument from using Scripture to interpret Scripture that it was God's will to heal people? Couldn't we look at other passages, Psalm 103 and others, about these healing promises that were in the Old Testament? Could we not look at those? Absolutely. But we also turn to the New, and we read this last week, Matthew chapter 8. Verse 1, when he had come down to the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Behold, a leper came and worshiped, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. 
Now, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out in the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done to you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now when Jesus had come to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, he himself took our infirmities, and he bore our sicknesses. Now why, did it, why is this such a big deal? We watch them say the interpretation of Isaiah 53, how Matthew realized and utilized this tells us exactly what God intended with the use of that word. That he cast out the spirits with the word. And he killed all who were sick. Because why? People were coming to him. And he used this pastor. So how do we know that he bore our sickness and carried our pains? Because God said so. As I said last week, it's a lot easier to believe that he either doesn't do it at all, is somehow based off your faith or his will. Because what does that do for me as a minister? Takes all the burden off of me, right? Either God doesn't heal, so I don't need to pray for you. We'll just pray to God that his will be done. It's not his will to heal you, in which we don't know. We're praying, God, if it be your will, heal that person. Or you just didn't have enough faith. Who did I just shift the burden to? The individual. I find it ironic those who will say that God, if it be your will, heal this person while that person is seeking medical treatment that may heal that person. Because if it's not God's will to heal them, then why are you circumventing the will of God by seeking medical treatment? Isn't that a problem? Would be for me. So now you're going against God's will. Problem is you don't know what His will is. So again, let's begin to look at this. Let's take this a step further. We're building brick upon brick. Because imagine, church, if we begin to get the understanding that it is God's will to heal, and we are the ministers, not me personally, we individually, born-again believers who lay hands on the sick and see them recover, if we get this revelation and understanding of it where we walk in confidently knowing the authority that we have in God through what Jesus has done, that we can go into any situation and be like, you know what, I'm praying for that person. I'm going to watch a miracle happen right now. And we start seeing it regularly. What happens? It'll be the same thing that happened in the Scripture, in the New Testament. People are hearing. People are seeing. Things are moving. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Because we've got to look at this. We're looking at the next passage. We're not going to spend as much time in this, but I want you to see something here. Because we're going to overcome an objection that we have to this. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Now, I am not going to spend any time talking about the wounding and bruising. Those are two different things. One's an external you can see it. The other one's internal. We know what a bruise is. It's internal bleeding, right? Transgressions and iniquities. We're not going to worry about that either. 
Because that's not the focus of what we're talking about, but we could spend weeks on that part alone. It's by His stripes we are healed. We need to understand what that means. We need to understand why the stripes were necessary. I mean, you think about it from a Passover standpoint, knowing that Jesus was the Passover lamb. When you understand, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about this um, as we get closer to Passover, which I think is the end of March, if I recall. We will have a Seder meal very likely in uh, April. I'm not 100% sure on the date yet. I will let you know. But that'll be coming up, and you'll see some of this there. But you know, the one thing is that we do know about the Passover lamb is you didn't have to beat the fire out of the thing in order to kill it. See, the only thing that doesn't fit the model is the fact that Jesus was tormented and beaten and tortured. That's the only thing that doesn't fit the Passover model. Now, we see here words used. We know his stripes. Where were the stripes? Stripes on his back. Realistically, they're all over his body. But they would, the the cat of nine tails, they would stripe his back. So here's the argument. This is not talking about physical healing. We're not talking about that you have the flu and Jesus died to heal your flu or cancer or stub toe or pick whatever you want. But Jesus' stripes are a metaphor about our spiritual healing. That spiritually we are healed. So we have to begin to break this down. Number one, we have to ask the question, are we spiritually healed? Show of hands, how many of you guys think we are spiritually healed? As a general, Jesus died? You guys are afraid to answer, aren't you? Nobody's willing to commit, are you? You know I'm always setting you up. i got to come up with a new tactic. Okay, thank you. Adam, thanks for coming. I have an extra donut on the way out the door. Think about this. Spiritually healed, we got to understand what that means. But we can do the same thing that we did before. Let's look at the usage of the word. We'll start there. We'll start very simply. We'll look at the word healed. Does anybody want to take a guess what the word healed means? Stretch means no longer sick. It's all better. Let's look at the uses. Genesis chapter 20, verse 17. So Abram prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, his female servants. Then they bore children. What do you think he meant? Oh, he spiritually healed them. No, of course not. Leviticus 14, verse 3. And the priest shall go out to the camp, and the priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest shall command to take him, uh, take for him who is to be cleansed, two living and clean birds, cedar, wood, scarlet, and hyssop. Okay, we're going to stop there. So if the leprosy is healed, you think that is some sort of a spiritual metaphor? No. Do you guys realize there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of verses that use the exact same word for the word healed, and every time... It is healing of some physical ailment. Now, I am no rocket scientist, but I tend to look and say, okay, well, it seems to be that the meaning is applied across the board for the word heal. But we also see this used in 1 Peter, and this is where one of the arguments come from. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So, so far, what are we seeing? We're seeing how the attitude is that we carry. If we're doing good and we receive a beating or whatever for it, it seems to be that that is what it's talking about. If you do wrong and you face judgment for that, well... 
you deserve it. But if you're doing good and getting a judgment for it, that's a little different. Verse 21, for this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. To himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we see the same quote here. By whose stripes we are healed. This is the only direct quotation in the New Testament of Isaiah 53, 5. And what are we seeing here? We're not seeing it talking about physical healing. We're not seeing it talking about spiritual healing. We're seeing it talking about Christ as our example. You guys see that? Suffering for doing good. In Mark 5, verse 29, it actually used the same Greek word here as in uh, verse 24. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Same exact word. So was she spiritually healed? Was this a metaphor? Of course not. Because we also know that after that moment when she reached out, touched the hem of his garment, I went through all of that, that other people began coming around wanting to do the same thing. Were they just spiritually healed? Was it just a metaphor? Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there was a Pharisee and teacher of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to metaphorically heal them. Isn't that wonderful? No. What was the cornerstone of Jesus' ministry? He healed them. Is he spiritually healing people? Were we spiritually healed? In other words, because we were sinners, Jesus came and He healed the sin inside of us. Is that what Scripture says? You say no. That's interesting because she knows by the tone of my voice that it's all a setup. You see, we've got to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We weren't spiritually sick and Jesus made us well. We were spiritually dead And Jesus gave us life. Now, if you really want to split hairs, you could say, well, isn't that kind of the same thing? But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He didn't take something sick and make it well. He took something dead and gave it life. There's a distinction there. Imagine, if you will, that we were in the middle of a funeral, dead person in the casket, and we reach out and we pray for them, and we can't, that person comes to life. Is anybody talking about healing? No. Do you notice that in the New Testament it talks about a distinction about raising the dead? 
I've never done it. Don't intend to start anytime soon. Okay? I know. Disappointing. Maybe next week. Never know. (laughs) But the thing is, is like there's a distinction. Because spiritually dead people have no idea of what God is. They don't care. But there's something that happens when we're spiritually alive. We begin to seek after the things of God. Our spirit draws us near. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin no longer live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So therefore, which means what? Because of this, we were buried with him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Newness of life. Old things have passed away. New things. Do we see this? Baptized into Christ. The dead thing went in the grave with Christ. The new thing came to life with Him. What is baptism, water baptism, signifying? It is the going into the grave and the coming out alive. Dead thing, live thing. There's a difference. Not the same thing. All things are new. The idea of the new creation is is from the Greek word metamorphosis. It's the same one as a butterfly. Caterpillar goes into the cocoon, becomes a ball of goo, comes out a butterfly. You ever notice they don't look the same? I mean, if we have not watched that happen, that process, did you ever, if you'd never heard of that, you stumble upon this beautiful butterfly, and then you see this disgusting caterpillar sitting there and be like, same thing? No. You had to be told. Let's go on. Verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be, we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, in other words, just like that, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What I was saying is that when you become spiritually alive for the first time, we no longer are slaves to sin because we have been set free from it. We can choose to enter into sin. We can choose to do things, but we are supposed to take control of our bodies and no longer act like they act because you're not dead anymore. You were dead, now you're alive. Jesus was dead, and then he came alive. Lazarus was dead, and then he came alive. There is such a difference there. It wasn't that Lazarus was sick and he was healed. That's a whole different thing. The centurion servant was sick, and then Jesus healed him. I mean, we see this time and time again, but here's the thing. We have to understand, what is the purpose of this? 
What are we looking at? What we need to understand from where the standpoint that we come from and the, the basically the pattern that was being unfolded of what we just read is that Christ is our example. You've probably heard the term, to be Christ-like. In other words, if you call yourself a Christian, what are you supposed to be? Like Christ. Therefore, you should be doing what He did. Now, here's the problem. What do we mean by that? We mean morally. But we don't look at the works that He was doing to be our example. We look at the moral framework that He was doing. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. So did Christ leave us an example for us to follow His steps? Peter sure thought so. How about 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1? Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. This is Paul. What's he telling? You can follow what my example, because I am following Christ's example. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So are we to imitate God? Sure. And he gives Christ as the example in that. Let's look at another one. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that or by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So we see a number of different verses here that talk about imitating Christ. And we see these things, we should walk as he walked. Oh, yes, we should go and, and feed the poor, and we should help people out. We should be loving and not judging, and all of this other nonsensical stuff. Those things matter, don't get me wrong. But what else did he do? In other words, what was he doing on the earth? When he came, what did he do every time? Well, let's look at a couple spots. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought, him, uh, brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, he healed them. So if we're doing what Christ had done, should we not be doing that as well? What did he do? Well, the first thing he did is he preached the gospel of the kingdom in their synagogues. He taught and he healed the sick. Not some of the sick, all the sick that was there. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. What if we change the way we think of being Christ-like to mimic that? What happens if every day that we were preaching the gospel and healing sick people? What would that look like in our world? Wouldn't it be different than what we see today? Be completely different. When Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ, what was Paul doing? Well, he was going around. He was teaching in the synagogues. He was preaching the gospel everywhere. And he was healing the sick. What did Peter do? He did the same thing. In fact, it'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that is a major player in the New Testament that wasn't doing those things. What if being Christ-like 
takes it beyond this superficial, let's just be morally good. That's important. Don't misunderstand me. We're just not supposed to do certain things or be certain ways. But what if we actually took the works that Jesus did? Every once in a while, you've got to flip a table. Every once in a while, you've got to make a whip. That doesn't preach very good, does it? My wife likes it. She's got Irish blood in her. She's a fighter by genetics. That's why I never win an argument. What else did he do? Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Now, we know a number of things. How did he do that? Well, the Holy Spirit was within him, upon him. The power was there. We saw times where he gave that authority to a group of people and sent them out and said, no, go do what I do. And then what did they do? They came back talking. Even the demons are subject to us by your name. It's amazing. They weren't expecting that. That's how it worked. We also know that other passages tell us that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells within us. You see, we're coming down to the point where we have to begin to look at, number one, is what did Jesus do for us? We looked at the atonement and what that is. We looked at how the penalty and the price was paid on our behalf. And we're knowing that his blood was shed, that that is what redeemed us. It was the third cup in the supper, the Passover meal, the cup of redemption. And we know by his stripes, we were healed. The breaking of his body. We don't understand it all, but we know that that's what it says. In fact, you guys have these here. We've got communion. We're going to take here in just a second. You see, this signifies something. This isn't just haphazardly or some sort of sacrament that we take we choose to do this we choose not to do it we do it together as a church once a month we have them available up here every sunday you can come grab them grab them before we start whatever you want to do during worship anytime because we want you to be able to take it but you know what you also you should do every single day in your home because by doing so what are you doing you're remembering what he's done now i've taught on this before about the significance of the bread. I have talked to several Jewish people, Messianic Jewish people, who don't necessarily believe healing the way that we believe it, and none of them have a satisfactory answer of what the significance of the bread was. Not one. I've yet to find one. Because it doesn't make any sense to the Passover lamb. But here we are. So let's get this out here. Because Jesus made a very powerful statement. When he said, he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, now this is my body. My body. His body. This is my body. Which is what? Broken. For whom? For you. Now why did his body have to be broken for you? We don't really know. But we know what the prophecy said. As often as you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. So let's do that right now. Then it said he took the cup after supper, as I said, the cup of redemption. It's the third cup out of four in the Passover meal. And he makes a very powerful statement that we often overlook. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And what do we know about covenants? 
they were always ratified with blood. Whenever a covenant was made between two people, it was ratified with a sacrifice. Blood had to be shed. That's where we get the idea of blood covenants. He said, this is my blood in the new covenant. So now we're entering into that new covenant. As often as you drink it, you do it in remembrance of me. So let's do that now. You see, we're looking upon what Jesus did. Is it fair to say that whatever Jesus paid for and says is your right to take, we should do? Is that not a a, a fair thing to say? If, If we all went down to the Mexican restaurant today and I paid for all the meals, I said you order whatever you want. If you order one taco, that's your problem. Because there's enchiladas and tamales. There's whatever you want. Here's the problem. Think about this. I know it's kind of a, a dumb example, but imagine is if all of this, you can have anything on the menu. It's all taken care of. You just order whatever you want. And we just went in there. It's like, I just want the salvation and maybe, maybe a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I said, but you can have anything you want. It's all yours. It's all, I paid for it. It's taken care of. You just step into it. Just grab it. Well, that's okay. Is that not what we do with Scripture? That's exactly what we do. You ever go to Golden Corral? That's why you need the wide-angle lens. I'm a high roller there. Heavy on the roll. Anybody? No? Okay. Tough crowd. Let me tell you a little fat guy move that you got to do when you go there, okay? This is, this is free nugget, all right? This is underrated and nobody knows it. I discovered this, but you take those rolls, okay? This is free. I'm, this, I am not charging you for this information. You will thank me later, I promise you. Take those rolls. They got to be hot. When they come out fresh, and get a bowl of vanilla ice cream and dip those rolls. I know it sounds insane. And every time I tell somebody this, they're like, that's okay until they try it. I have received at least six phone calls that said, why did I ever doubt you? I'm not kidding. It's a true story. Trust me. I should be the marketing guy for Golden Corral. But imagine going there. What, what, what are the rules of Golden Corral? What do you say? Wait a minute. I didn't. With vanilla ice cream, baby. That's what I'm talking about. But imagine you go there. What can you get? From Golden Corral, anything you want. How much of it can you have? As much as you want. And what idiot goes and just say, I just want the Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Nobody. That's what we do with God. Jesus, you paid for all of this. Your promises are true. You've laid it out for me. All I have to do is walk in the fullness and the truth of what you have said. And what do we do? I don't really want that. We've got to change our mindset. Now, there's some problems here. Because you can begin to see, and guys, we could spend weeks just going through scriptures about healing and what it is and how we know and all this other kind of stuff. I am relying on the fact that some of you guys already kind of hold these values and these beliefs. And I'm not spending all of that time. But I'm showing you scripturally there is a good argument for the stance that we take. But that doesn't mean there's not counter-arguments that we have to address. 
In other words, did Jesus heal every person that he came across? No. No. Talk about he went to his hometown. A prophet is without honor in his own home. And then what about Paul? We see Paul do miraculous things, but we know he had a thorn in his flesh. And we believe that that was some sort of an eye disease or something like that that he had because he says with, with large letters that I have to write. And he talks about to the Galatians that you would have plucked out your own eyes from me. So apparently he has some sort of an eye issue. We don't know. What do we do with that? Why did he not heal Timothy? Timothy, just take a little wine for your stomach problems. Timothy, do you not know what Jesus did? You don't need that. What about Trophimus when he said he leaves him behind? Are those good arguments? Sure. Are there biblical answers to them? You better believe it. You see, the thing is, is, is we are really quick to hone in on the counter-arguments, but not study them through. What if I told you there are answers to all of these things? That we can know it. We just got to do a little homework. That'll be next week. Okay? All I'm trying to get you to see is if we begin to think differently and we use Christ as our example, we begin to walk in the way that He walked. Not just morally, that's important. The giving to the poor and the caring for others and being moved with compassion for those who are suffering. Those are all great components. But what if we use Christ as our example in the power and the authority that we walk in? Because if I told you that Christ is the head and we are His body, and that authority works its way down, and we are His hands and feet on the earth, does that not imply that we have a responsibility to continue the work that Christ was doing when He was physically standing here? Absolutely it does. So why aren't we doing it? Because we have not fully believed what the Word has said. It's time we change that, church. So we're going to answer some of those questions next week. Let's pray. We'll get out of here. Father, we thank You.